Scripture. Please turn with me to your study outlines. And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad that you are with us here today as we continue our series entitled Being a Person of Purpose. And now, basically, the series becomes a character study on an obscure Old Testament prophet by the name of Elisha, who is a wonderful example of a man of purpose, a person of purpose, and how we can be the same. And the title of today's study is It's All Easy to God. And a theme today and a theme throughout this series has been to live a life expecting the miraculous. Uh, We won't always see the miraculous, but live a life of anticipation, of expectation of God doing beyond the ordinary, doing the extraordinary in and through us. But we've got to answer one perspective before we dig into this message. And I am so grateful how God worked this out. Because I want you to know, if God hadn't worked it out this particular way uh, for for Todd to be here with us this morning, uh, I don't think I could have preached this message. Because this message is about anticipating the miraculous. But a huge question whenever you deal with this is how do you handle it? What do you do when God doesn't? choose to say yes to our prayers. And I, as I look across our church family, I see so many of you that have been asking God, God, come through in this area. And he has not done that. He has not answered our prayers the way we would want him to. And so the only way I can talk about living a life of expectation of the miraculous is for us to talk for a few minutes on the question of what do we do when God doesn't choose to do that? And the key verse and passage in the Bible is 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that talks about this. Now remember, this is Paul, arguably one of the greatest Christians that ever lived, one of the greatest prayer warriors, one of the greatest men of faith. I mean, if it took faith for this thing to be done, um, Paul would have done it. Uh, he had the miraculous in his life. It was, his life was characterized by the miraculous. Many miracles connected with Paul. And yet in this one instance, God said no. Uh, it says, uh, picking it up with verse 7, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Now, we don't know what that was, but it was something in his life that Paul didn't want to be there. A messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. This great man of God, this man of faith, this man of the miraculous, three times said, God, come through for me in this area. But God said, no. God said, I've got a different plan. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And so I I just want you to know, as my church family, I love you so much, and I know just probably the tip of the iceberg about things in your life that are thorns, that you would give anything to change. And the only way I can proceed to preach on this, God just worked it out uh, for Todd to be here with us today to talk about uh, what happens when that doesn't happen. And then we'll talk about what happens when it does happen. Uh, Todd, would you come on up? He's a friend of mine. He's the senior pastor of our sister church, Sierra Vista Community Church in Upland, California. And nobody lives out this verse better than Todd. I'm I'm sure you'd prefer a different introduction than that, wouldn't you, Todd? But he's written a book called Life's a Pain. And this book is going to be available out in the lobby afterwards. And, And I'm telling you, 
This is a phenomenal resource. Uh, Let me just do a little bit of a poll. How many of you either have ongoing pain in your own life, and it can be of an emotional nature and other nature, or you know somebody that does? Let me just see your hands. And so I don't think it's by accident that you're here. You were prompted by God to be here this morning. This is a divine appointment. It's not by accident because he either wants to give you this word of encouragement or he wants to use you uh, to to give it um, to somebody else. So would you please uh, welcome Todd as he comes to share his testimony with us. So thanks. Thanks for having me. And uh, just so you know, I love your pastor. He's been such a great friend to me. I absolutely love this passage of scripture because it so depicts my life in so many ways. But I also absolutely hate this passage of scripture because it depicts my life in so many ways. I love the fact that God's grace, that empowering, that strengthening grace that we so desperately need when we're weak is sufficient. That word sufficient means it's just what we need. I think it's actually more than what we need. But I hate the fact that God said no to Paul when he asked for the thorn in the flesh to be taken away because that's what he said to me. I love the fact that even though he said no, he actually gave Paul something even better, that grace. But I hate the fact that so many Christians throw this scripture at people who are suffering and then walk away. So let me tell you my story and why I wrote the book. I grew up in a a great Christian family in Orange County, two wonderful parents and an older brother. And uh, we lived in a neighborhood where, you know, it was so great, so safe, you could just go out and play until the streetlights came on. I loved playing sports, chasing girls, and I had a friend who had an orange tree, and we used to climb up this orange tree and pick oranges and throw them at cars. I had a great life. (laughs) But when I was about five years old, the first time I had a really terrible headache. And I remember crying and my mom uh, coming in and laying me down on the bed and putting a cool cloth on my head, a couple aspirin, and off to sleep I went. Woke up the next day feeling great, didn't think anything of it until the next time, and the next time, and the next time. And the the more that I got older, the worse the headaches became. I went off to college, and the headaches got worse. Right after graduating from college, they finally labeled it migraines. We finally had a label. We finally had, this is what it is, so we can go after it. And yet, nothing they tried, including a nose surgery, Helped. They just got worse. I got married, started a career, and they got worse. Where is God in all this? I used to say to him, where are you? I want this to be gone. You should take it away. And yet he kept saying, my grace is sufficient. We started going to emergency rooms on a regular basis to get as much powerful drugs that we could just to take the pain away. We went so often to the the emergency room that they thought about naming a wing after us. And yet, they continue to get worse. We live on a pain scale in our house, one being almost no pain, 10 being, shoot me, just get it over with now. I live at a seven or eight every day. In the last 10 years, I've never been below a five. 
And 20 years ago, the migraines and the headaches decide to come into my daily life. And I have had a chronic headache for the last 20 years every day. I have one right now. When I wake up tomorrow, I'll still have it. We have tried just about everything possible to get rid of this. We've been to 10 neurologists, seven chiropractors, three physical therapists, headache clinics all over the United States. We've tried homeopathic acupuncture. I've drank some of the nastiest smelling stuff you've ever smelled just to relieve the pain. And yet, they've gotten worse. Now, I don't know where you're at this morning. But maybe you understand this. Maybe you're really hurting. Maybe you're in a chronic health situation that just won't go away and you've pleaded and God hasn't taken it. Or you know someone who's in a chronic health situation and God hasn't taken it. Maybe you've lost someone and that grief is so overwhelming. You wonder where God is. You wonder if he's even present anymore in your life. Or maybe you have a child that's walked away from the Lord and your knees are so sore from praying on, your, on the carpet all the time and yet that kid hasn't come back to Christ. See, when I graduated college, I started a career at McDonnell Douglas. And two years into that, God called me into the ministry. And I knew when I became a pastor that he was just going to take it away. I'm serving him full time. How could he let this stay? And yet... It got worse. But here's what I want to encourage you with this morning. I don't know where you're at, but God sure does. I sure can't answer the why question. But I can tell you from experience that God's grace is more than sufficient. He desires to flow that through your body this morning, wherever you're at, or maybe you have a loved one that's there, and God just wants to say, hey, I just want to, I just want to share my amazing grace with you. God has done so much work in my life through the pain. And let me tell you, from the bottom of my heart, I wish it was not there. And yet, I'm a better pastor because of the pain. I'm more compassionate because of the pain. God's used the pain as much as I hate it to shower his grace upon me. And I pray this morning that you will just embrace his amazing grace. Thanks for letting me be here. Now, this book is a terrific resource. It's going to be available in the lobby. We always put that phrase, suggested donation. That's what it costs, Todd. But you just take it. Don't worry about the money part. The church will make up the difference if you can't. Or the person behind you in line will make up the difference. That's the way it happens in the body of Christ. Uh, you know, those that have given, those that don't have as much, uh, you know, receive. And so that's the way it is. And we'll cover the difference. Just take this. We want you to have this. Uh, if they run out in those greedy 830 people like, locusts went out there. And, um, and I even said, because we thought you guys would wipe them out. I said, save one for the 1111s, because they get so ticked that they, we always run out by 1111. Um, but, you know, you'll have books with us next week. If we, if we run out today, you can go online at amazon.com, and you'll see the other ways that you can access that. But, you know, 
Again, I don't think you're here by accident. This is a tremendous, I, and I couldn't believe it because Todd is the most upbeat guy. I've known him for years. He's one of the most upbeat guys I know. Until I read this book, I had no idea uh, what they were going through. And uh, it's just a tremendous resource for you. And you know what? One of the heroes or heroines of the book is his wife, Lisa. She's with us here today as well. Would you let her know how much we love and appreciate her as well? Now, Todd, as I mentioned, I don't think it's by accident that God, I mean, we were trying to work out different dates, and this is the one. Because knowing what I know people are going through in our church family, I couldn't uh, preach the rest of this without having Todd shared what happens when God doesn't do the miraculous. But still, we need to anticipate that at times he will do the miraculous. He will say yes to us. And this story illustrates that. We're going to meet another wicked king of Israel by the name of Joram. Joram is the son of Ahab. Now, Ahab and Jezebel, two of the most notorious people in all of history, they were sold out to Satan worship. They were committed to orgies and even child sacrifice, and they influenced the nation of Israel to do the same. He became Israel, king of Israel, the son of this pair in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned for 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. Now, that's kind of like saying he was a good guy compared to Hitler. You know, that's what it's saying. He was bad, but not as bad as his mom and dad. It reminds me of the story of two brothers in this small town, and they were notorious. They took advantage of everybody. They ripped off widows, children. They were just a horrible pair of brothers, and one of them dies. And so the surviving brother goes into the office of uh, the pastor to prepare the funeral. He says, Pastor, I will give $100,000 to your capital campaign, your financial campaign of the church uh, building campaign, if you will say at his funeral that my brother was a saint. And the pastor's like, oh my goodness, that night he tosses and turns. He says, I will lose all credibility in this town if I call this man a saint. But on the other hand, I sure could use that $100,000 for the church. So he gets up to the next day of the funeral, the surviving brother sitting on the front row. And he says, the man we are burying today was a notorious sinner in this town. He took advantage of everybody. He ripped off widows, children. He was an awful, awful man. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. Okay, so so that's the way Joram was. Uh, Joram was, uh, compared to his mom and dad, he was a saint, but that ain't saying much. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made, this idol of Baal. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam had established calves to worship for Israel in the northern part of Israel and the southern part of Israel and told the people to worship there. Son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, he did not turn away from them. So he was kind of half-hearted, one foot following God, one foot not following God. Now, Misha, king of Joab, raised sheep. And he had to pay the king of Israel a tribute, a tax. How many of you have taxes on your mind uh, this morning? A tribute, a tax of 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled. He says, I'm not paying those taxes anymore against the king of Israel. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all of Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, who was the king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go to fight with, against Moab with me? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Now, just one word on Jehoshaphat. He was a good guy who constantly got in trouble because he hung out with the wrong people. 
And I'm planning on preaching just one message on him come October, November. I think I have it in my plan uh, for a few months from now. But the one thing about Jehoshaphat, he was a good guy. He just was always messing up his life because he hung out with the wrong people. By what route shall we attack, he asked. Through the desert of Edom, he answered. Now, if this were a movie, the music would foreshadow and get ominous right now. When I said desert of Edom, it should go dun, 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 dun. Okay, bad mistake. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. They were dying of thirst. Now let's go to our map that we looked at last week. And remember, it's a divided kingdom. It's like a civil war period like we had in our country, north against south. Northern part of Israel is called Israel. Southern part is called Judah. Israel was like never following God. Judah would follow him some of the time. Most of the time would not follow God. So anyway, Israel gathers their army and and you would think they would attack from the north. You see Moab right there down by the Dead Sea. The typical way, the easiest way would be to attack by the north. However, all the fortifications were in the north. That's where Moab expected them to attack. That's where all their fortresses were. So they do what they call a military strategy, a fish hook maneuver. And so Israel goes down with their army. They gather up the army in Judah. They go over and gather the army of Edom, who was uh, subservient to Judah. They were like a vassal of Judah. So then the three armies march around there. Then they're going to come in like a fish hook and attack from the east, which would surprise Moab. And also they had no defenses there. There's just one major problem. You have to go through the deserts of Edom to the south of the Dead Sea. This is like marching your army through Death Valley before they attack. And disaster strikes. They have no water. They're dying of thirst on the verge of their attack. What, exclaimed the king of Israel, has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? Now, this is so typical. We do our own thing. We never check with God. You never see here that they inquired with God that they should do this attack. They never ask God. They just do their own thing, get in trouble, and then shake our fists at God. God, you are so mean. You are so bad. I mean, this is just so typical of us today. It's typical of my life. I'll go out and do my own thing, get myself in trouble. And I'm like, God, why are things so hard? Why are you so mean to me? Well, they never checked with God uh, to begin with. And so he does this uh, to God in this situation. He says, God, as you called us together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab. I was reading some stats this last week from the CDC, the Center of Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, um, about sexually transmitted diseases. Now, we as a country, about 40 years ago, embarked on what's called the sexual revolution. And, And not to use that as an example so much, but it's just like such a concrete example of doing our own thing rather than God's thing and the ramifications of that. And so about 40 years ago, when I was growing up, we said to God, we're smarter than you. God said, you know, keep this beautiful thing, this gift I've given you, keep it in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman, and I'll bless you with it. If it gets outside, it's going to cause you heartache. We said, well, thanks, God, but you're way too repressive for us, so we can figure things out. We're smarter than you are. And here we are with the ramifications of that 40 or 50 years later. And the STDs in America that this was talking about, sexually transmitted diseases, they said, do you know that a typical American between the ages of 15 and 24, a typical young American between the ages of 15 and 24 is six six times more likely to contract a sexually transmitted disease than they are to graduate from college. Average American, 15 to 24, six times more likely to get an STD than they are to graduate from college. 110 Americans, 
uh, today have, have sexually transmitted diseases. That's more than one in three. If you take out the babies and the little children, that's probably like one in two. Now, if you're here today and, and you suffer in that area, um, please understand, I mean, a group this size, and if it's 50% of Americans of adult age, you know, that's going to strike many people here. And understand that God loves you so much. And just like we're going to see in this story, you know, the, even though they should have asked God at the beginning, they eventually do get around, and better late than never. And so you can always start obeying God and, and forgive that thing, and he'll, he'll wipe it clean, and you can move on sometimes with some damage in your life, but you can move on from this time forward. You can say, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do things according to God's plan for my life. And it's never too late uh, in order to do that. But Jehoshaphat asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Now, he should have asked at the beginning, but at least he finally does ask. Say, look, we've gotten in trouble. Now's the time to kind of ask God. That's what we do in the Christian life many times. We do it our own way rather than God's way. We get in trouble. Then we say, okay, but better late than never. Better to ask now. Should have asked at the beginning, but at least he eventually did ask. An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with them. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. What are you coming to me for? Why not go to those gods that you worship? No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. He says, it's only God that can get us out of this jam. We should have listened to him to begin with, but he's the only one that can get us out of this. Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. But now bring me a harpist. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came on Elisha, and he said, this is what the Lord says. Now, this is why worship is so important in our service. It prepares our hearts to receive what God wants to say to us. I know that some that are into the study of the word just want to cut through the worship real fast and get to the word. But you see, it is in worship that our hearts, it's like plowing the hard ground. And it's in worship that our hearts get prepared to hear what God wants to say. I, I just love the music of Pomona First Baptist. I just I just love the music so much. And I always say, after our music, I could get up here and read the phone book and you guys would get blessed out of it, you know. I just, after our music, I could just get up there and you'd go, oh, that was amazing. You know, because the, the, the worship, the music, prepares our hearts to hear from God. And so while the harpist was playing, he hears from God. I will fill this valley with pools of water, for this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. Turn to the next page of your study outline, uh, verse 20. The next morning after the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. Now, I always like to say that I... I understand the Bible in certain areas so much better since I moved to Southern California because, or to the West because the, the climate of Southern California is so similar to the climate of, of Israel. And so there's things I never completely understood until I moved to the West and until I moved to Southern California. And that is, as Californians, we understand that there can be a rain burst in a faraway mountain 
And the next day it can be sunny, but water can flow where it had not yet been there before, right? We understand that. Or I was talking to friends from Texas uh, a few minutes ago, and they call it an arroyo in Texas, where you can get a flash flood, and all of a sudden here comes water where you didn't expect water to be. Now, God can use direct supernatural means to accomplish it, but much of the time he uses natural means. And so what may have happened here is there may have been a cloudburst the night before in the mountains of Edom, and now even if the day is sunny, here comes the water flowing from the direction of Edom. Now, here's what happens. Lomites, look, it's a sunny day. There's water where there shouldn't be water. Uh, It looks uh, reddish because it's combined with the soil. Also, the rising sun makes it look even more reddish. They see the chaos and the distance of three armies drinking water where they had previously been dying of thirst. And they say, you know, it must be blood and not water. They must have attacked each other because this was a loose alliance. They didn't like each other. Israel didn't like Judah. Edom was trying to get free from Judah. They may have turned on each other, very similar to World War II. And we were allied with the Soviet Union, with Russia. And, you know, you could eat, we were barely allies with each other in World War II. And we could have easily turned on each other. And so the Moabites think that's what's happened. So they come out from their defensive positions and, and rush on them. And lo and behold, they find out they're still unified as an army. But now they're vulnerable. They're out in the omen. They've left their defenses. And so the army of Israel wins the battle along with um, Judah and Edom. Now it ends in a horrific way because they conquer them in all areas except for one area where the king of Moab holds up called Here Harasheth. We'll put a picture of what it looks like today. And you can see how impregnable it is. And so they lay siege to it. And the king of Moab tries one uh, way to break out. It says in verse 26, when the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then a horrific thing happens in verse 27. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king. This is the crown prince. And he offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. Moab was known for their child sacrifice. And so somehow to please his god Chemosh, he sacrifices his baby boy, the crown prince, on the walls that the Israelites could see. Now this next phrase, the fury against Israel was great, is confusing in the Hebrew. We're not exactly sure what it means. But one Bible scholar believes that the nation of Israel was so horrified by what he did. You see, with Chemosh, if we put his picture back up there again, what they would do is they would heat the idol to red-hot temperature, and then they would place the baby in the red-hot arms to be burned alive in the arms of Chemosh. And so um, what Bible scholars believe is, is that the Israelites were so horrified by this, as evil as they were, as far from God as they were, They were so horrified by this action that they withdrew and went back to their country um, once again. It reminds me of what's going on in the news now. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's been so hidden by the mainstream media. But this horrific abortion doctor trial going on in Philadelphia, how many of you have heard of that? It's it's just now leaking out. It's been basically hidden by the media until recently, but now it's leaked out, and now it's beginning to get out there. And it's absolutely horrific. So that even pro-abortion Americans are horrified at this. It's so horrific that even pro-abortion, pro-choice Americans are horrified by the stories that they hear. 
And that's what happened here with Israel, that even though they were far from God, uh, this was so horrific to see this thing done that it says that they just went home because it it just uh, appalled them what this king of Moab had done. Now, one little P.S. for those of you that love archaeology about this story. There's the Moabite stone is one of the great archaeological finds of the 19th century. And it completely confirms from an outside the Bible, what we call an extra biblical source, the events of 2 Kings chapter 3. And the story behind this is this missionary by the name of F.A. Klein. He was in this uh, area that we're talking about, in the Moab area, and heard the locals talking about the Moabite stone. And so he went and they showed it to him. And fortunately, he wrote down everything that was on the stone, wrote, wrote it down. And then he went to try to get the museums uh, of Europe to purchase the Moabite stone. Well, the locals got word that this thing could be worth some money. And so I kid you not, they think to themselves, you know what? We'll be able to sell it for more if it's broken into pieces than if it's intact. So they heat it up. They pour ice cold water on it. It shatters into a bunch of pieces. And then they sell it piecemeal because they thought they could get more money that way. Now, fortunately, F.A. Klein had written down like the picture on the front of a jigsaw puzzle. He had written down what was on it. So they were able to piece the pieces together and put it back intact uh, once again. And again, like I said, it confirmed the events that we've been reading here in 2 Kings chapter 3. Now, with the remainder of our time, here's the main theme. It's all easy to God. Now, as Todd was just talking about, he, he was discussing what happens when, even if it's easy to God, God still doesn't do it, okay? But this is a reminder that in that thing we're praying about, that thing we're hoping for, to remember that we pray with faith and anticipation because if God chooses to act, it is easy to him. Second Kings 3, verse 18, this is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. In the original Hebrew, this word easy means light. This is light as a feather. This is not heavy lifting. This is easy lifting for God. It's an easy thing for God to do this if he chooses to do this particular thing. Genesis 18, God tells Abraham and Sarah they're gonna have a baby boy in their old age. And it's said that Sarah laughed. Why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Let me ask you a question. What in your life right now would make you laugh if God came through in that thing? I know for Todd and Lisa, if he woke up tomorrow without any headaches, it would make them laugh. What is that thing in your life that just seems impossible? There's no way God could do that. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? It's an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. What would make you laugh if God came through in that particular area? Numbers 11, the Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? Uh, You see this phrase throughout the Bible. Is God's arm too short to step into yours or my situation and and change it? Isaiah 52, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. It says God will flex his muscles. Number one, it's easy because God's power is limitless. Jeremiah says, nothing is too hard for you. Number two, it's easy because God never needs any help. The psalmist says he does whatever pleases him. He doesn't need our help to accomplish what he wants to do. Uh, Back in March 28, 1990, Michael uh, Jordan uh, had the highest point total of his career, 69 points. 
And that same night, there was a rookie center for the Bulls by the name of Stacey King. And he got into the game for a short amount of time, scored one point. So they asked him in the locker room afterwards what he thought about the evening. He said, I'll always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I worked together for a combined 70 points uh, in the game. (laughs) Reminds me of going to a picnic and you go at the last second to this church picnic and you know you're supposed to bring something, but you got nothing in there, so you run in the, open it up, a bologna sandwich, slap together a bologna sandwich, take it to the church picnic. You sit next to a family, and they pull out their picnic basket, and they've got uh, deviled eggs, and they've got macaroni salad, and potato salad, and roast beef, and chicken, and watermelon. Am I making you hungry yet? And that's why you want to come to the lunch for starting point that will be right <laughs> right through there, and they pull it all out, and they've got pecan pie, and they, they put it all out there, and then they say, why, why don't you join us? And he goes, oh, I could never do that. Could never. No, 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 no. We've got plenty, and besides, we just love bologna sandwiches. And so you combine your meals, and you, here you come eating like a king when you uh, came like a pauper. Uh, I remember uh, Kimberly and I were watching our son Noah play a softball game this last week. She reminded me of a story. I told you last Sunday about how my best friend was our co-pastor. We were co-pastors together uh, back in New York near Brett Ryder. And we just loved doing ministry together. And, and we loved serving together. And we loved sports. But we were very competitive with each other. We were like best friends. I was the pastor. He was the associate pastor of this church. And, and we were very close friends. But we were extremely competitive to each other, particularly when it came to sports. And so we're playing softball. And he's the pitcher and I'm the batter. Now, he was a tremendous athlete. And I was a lousy ball player. I had a terrible arm, terrible batter. I could play the field, but just awful batting and throwing. And so I get up there, and he pitches, and I swung as hard as I could, top the ball, and it dribbles about two feet in front of the plate. So I take off running. Catcher throws it over the head of the first baseman. So I run to second. First baseman throws it over the head of the second baseman. I run to third, and I stand there taunting on third base, and he's the pitcher, and I'm pointing at him, going like this. He walks over to me, and he goes, where you are standing has nothing to do with you. This is my best friend. But it was true. And, and God doesn't need our help. Where we stand has nothing to do with us. It's easy because all God's acts are effortless. He will not grow tired or weary. Uh, Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Tony Evans writes, it takes more effort for God to create a universe than it takes for him to create an ant. Uh, Scientists were all excited last week because they found some more evidence for what they call, um, what we call dark matter in the universe. Do you know that only 4% of the matter in the universe is accounted for? That is, there must be 96% out there that we can't see called dark matter that we're unable to see because there's the gravitational pull of an additional 96%, but we we just can't see it. So there came a little bit more evidence last week, uh, and the scientific community was very excited for this because there's just only 4% that we can account for, that we can account for its gravitational pull from what we can see. Robert Smith Jr. writes, God came from nowhere because there was nowhere to come from. And God stood on nothing because there was nothing to stand on. And God took nothing and flung it out into the world and told it to stay there. 
God took a sun, put it in the sky without any upright, put nine planets in a merry-go-round system, and they haven't collided since the day of creation. Number four, it's easy because even nature obeys God. After he calmed the sea and the storm, the disciples said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this God that holds off rain for 17 straight years at the fairplex? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. 30 feet in diameter, 12 stories high, one whisper from God turns it into kindling wood. Number five, it's easy because God never has to ask permission. Never has to go to a congressional subcommittee. Never has to ask a board of directors He does whatever pleases him. The message paraphrase of that verse is, our God is in heaven doing whatever he wants to do. Now, what I want you to do is to think of one thing you long for that seems impossible. And and that's why I'm so glad Todd shared first. Because my heart breaks for those things that you long for that seem impossible and God has not answered. But think of those things. Think of those things. That addiction, will it it ever be broken? That marriage, will it ever be saved? That child, will we ever be reconciled? That friend, will they ever come to Christ? That physical need, will it ever be dealt with? What is that thing you think of right now that you long for that seems impossible? 1 John 5, verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. E.M. Bounds writes, God's word does not say ask, and you'll learn sweet patience by getting nothing, far from it, but it is a definite, clear, and positive ask, and it shall be given unto you. Let's stand for the closing benediction. And three things before we go. First of all, life's a pain will be out there. And so Todd and Lisa, you guys can feel free to go out. They'll be out there to sign your book and to and, uh, give them to you as long as they last. Um, number two, you'll get tickets to the Steve Amerson concert that Greg was talking about. And I'm telling you, this thing is an awesome oikos opportunity. This guy is unbelievable. This is going to be an unbelievable event. And, and it's going to be the first half of it's going to be secular songs like Broadway hits, like from Les Miserables. And then the second half is going to be sacred. So it's going to be a great bridge from the, the secular to the sacred and just a great, great event. So keep one to remind you of that two weeks from tonight and take the other to give to a friend. And uh, then the third thing that I want us to do is to think of that impossible thing that we were just thinking about Uh, as I read our closing benediction. It's from Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's family said, Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.